you know, the opposite side of the coin. As an athlete ages, maybe we think of some of our favorite athletes, Rafael Nadal, um, Roger Federer, as they've aged and their effectivities, their physical capacities may have changed, they, they adapted to remain skillful, right? They adapted their game so they didn't fall off a cliff. And as coaches, it is important to embed our athletes within alive movement problems so that they can do the same. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to today's show. I am your host, Coach Hob. Thank you for joining me and taking some time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We've done some of these in the past. Today is a solo episode taking a departure from our normal long format interviews where I discuss these concepts in skill acquisition and various other topics regarding athletes with some of the best coaches and practitioners in the world. We're going to be taking a little bit of a left turn and doing a deep dive into a topic that I think needs to be discussed and unpacked a little bit further. Now, in the, in the last few episodes, I've had some amazing guests on, but two in particular, uh, we discussed some of the words, some of the language that's used within the skill acquisition space, in particular, the language that is used within the ecological dynamics uh, framework. And there's been some debate going back and forth between, you know, some of the complexity of these terms. Is the onus on coaches to learn these terms or is the onus on practitioners, researchers to maybe repackage them in a way that is a little bit more digestible? And I think you could argue for both. And that's not what this episode is about. Um, during my conversation with, with both Rob Gray and, and Austin Einhorn, which I'll link to in the show notes, we discuss some of these ideas. And I do think that some of these ideas can be a little bit complex, a little bit harder to understand. And that's why I wanted to do this episode where we dive a little bit deeper into what they actually mean. And hopefully this episode can maybe shed some light on some of the potential misunderstandings that may be going around in the community about what these words actually mean. And then most importantly, what that means for us as coaches and how we can apply some of these concepts to our athletes. I mean, after all, we can sit and talk about theory. We can sit and talk about whether these words are too complex or not. But at the end of the day, it's about how can we make our athletes better? How can we make them more skillful? How can we help them achieve the things that they want to achieve? So let's get right into it. So the first topic that we're going to be discussing, the first word or phrase that we're going to be discussing, ironically, is the phrase skill acquisition. And I mentioned it in the intro, uh, and I mention it all the time, quite, fr- quite often, skill acquisition. And I think, you know, as I discuss, discussed with Rob Gray in, in our most recent conversation, I think at this point, the genie's out of the bottle, the cat is out of the bag. That is the term that we utilize for skill development. Now, whether that's the most appropriate term is definitely debatable, but I, in my opinion, think that the word skill acquisition implies some things that simply do not line up with how I view and how many other people view sport movement. If you think about the word acquisition, it implies that someone acquires something, they acquire the skill, they keep it in their back pocket, and then they are able to deploy that skill 
whenever it is called upon, whenever they want to. So this kind of implies the idea that you could acquire something without it being developed in context. Maybe I could acquire shuff- the, the, the skill of, of shuffling from cone to cone, and that automatically means I'm going to be a good defender in basketball. And I don't believe that to be true because in order, if we're looking at that example, to be a good defender in basketball, there are many other aspects than just being able to shuffle back and forth and create good deceleration angles, right? We have to be able to perceive what's in front of us. If we're thinking about that specific context of someone guarding someone, someone, I have to know what hand that person, what is their dominant hand, right? I have to be able to perceive their movements, right? What they're doing with the ball, um, any sort of cuts that they're making. Is there a screen coming? What type of defense am I playing? It's a lot different than just saying, you know, a shuffle back and forth as fast as you can. If that were the case, then the most athletic people in the NBA combine, there's like, a, I think a three, a lane agility test where they go back and forth, then they would always be the best defenders. And that's not the case, right? Some of the, the best defenders in basketball history are not some of the most athletic. Someone like a Bruce Bowen, someone who has to rely on other skills than just shuffling back and forth to a cone to be an excellent defender. So back on to the topic in the word of skill acquisition. I'm going to be referring to a paper that many of you have probably heard of and hopefully read, and I will link to that in the show notes because I do believe that this is a seminal paper in the world of skill acquisition and that every coach should give this a read. And that is the paper, uh, What Exactly is Acquired During Skill? from 2011 from Araujo and Davids. And there's a couple quotes in there that I've used on presentations and that stick with me and I've reread. But one of them I'll go ahead and read to you. And that is skill acquisition may not refer to an entity, but rather to the emergence of an adaptive functional relationship between an organism and its environment. And that quote is a very powerful one. And I suggest that you all write that down if you haven't already and think about what that means to you. But I'm gonna go ahead and explain what that means to me And a couple things stand out. And really, the last part, when it says a functional relationship between an organism and its environment, that means that skill is not something that is developed out of context. Like using the previous example that I said, it is a relationship between an organism and its environment. So basically, the athlete or the context in which the athlete is performing said skill is crucial. And when looking at skill, those cannot be separated. They are linked And they are going to help determine the level of skill that the athlete has. Another quote that I'll read from from this paper, adaptive skilled behavior, rather than being imposed by a pre-existing structure, emerges from this confluence of constraints under the boundary of conditions of a particular task or activity context. So again, highlighting that the task and the environment, right, the, the, the task constraints, the environmental constraints, the individual constraints are going to help shape the way in which that athlete develops skill. I think another context where this is really important or another situation, and I've talked about this before, is in the world of return to play in rehab. Oftentimes, traditional rehab is done in a very decontextualized, not in an alive type of way, right? Where athletes are doing things in a very technical, very rote, repetitious way, devoid of any of the information that they're going to experience during a sporting context. And then they are then expected to return right, and then apply that skill that they've utilized. And I use that word skill with air quotes in their sport. And that is not what I have seen. And that's not what some of the ACL, for example, re-injury rates show us. 
skill is developed within context of their sport. So what I propose is, and what other people have proposed, Rob Gray and, and, and Sean Mishkin, and Tyler Yerby, other people have proposed before me, but the term should really be thought of as skill adaptation, where an athlete is adapting their skill across many different contexts and across the time span. If we look at that last part that I just mentioned, right, we talked about context, but an athlete's skill level is going to be different as they age, as they progress, as they become stronger, because those constraints, those individual constraints are going to change. An athlete who is, you know, spends an off season, hopefully lifting weights and getting stronger, that's going to change their individual constraints. That's going to change how they adapt their skill. You know, the opposite side of the coin, as an athlete ages, maybe we think of some of our favorite athletes, Rafael Nadal, um, Roger Federer, as they've aged and their effectivities, their physical capacities may have changed, they, they adapted to remain skillful, right? They adapted their game so they didn't fall off a cliff. And as coaches, it is important to embed our athletes within a live movement problems so that they can do the same, right? So how does this apply to you? Again, whenever we're a coach and we're looking at skill, too often we think of running in a straight line on a track, now, if your sport is track, that may be a little bit different, but we're talking mainly in the context of team sports or, or opposed sports, but running in the context of a track or shuffling from cone to cone, as I mentioned, or from an MMA standpoint, maybe punching a bag, that does not mean, or hitting focus mitts for that matter in MMA or boxing, that does not mean that my athlete is skillful and that those skills will automatically transfer. We need to look at skill through the lens of the athlete and their environment. We therefore need to put our athletes in positions so they can adapt their skill in many, many, many different relevant situations. So hopefully they don't just become skillful in a context that does not apply to their sport, but they can be masterful movers and become skillful in many different contexts across many different situations and across many different time spans. Hey folks, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us and we'll be right back to the show. Let's face it, the world of supplements is often confusing and frustrating. And I would know, I've been there. I've been duped by the supplement companies many times, bought stuff that doesn't work or that has a whole bunch of artificial crap in it. If you know anything about me and how I feel about supplements, the one word that I would say is that I'm skeptical. For more on that, you can check out episode 39 with Corey Van Wyk. Today, I'm going to tell you about one of the few supplement companies that I can personally stand behind, and that's Ultra Human. You know, oftentimes with supplements, it's not about what you put into them that matters. It's about what you don't put into them that really makes a difference. With Ultra Human, it's one of the cleanest supplement companies around. No dairy, no sugar, no gluten, no artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, but most importantly, no filler and no marketing hype. At Ignite Performance, we've used their products for years with our athletes and have had great results. It's a product that actually tastes great and works with a doctor-approved ratio of amino acids for enhanced recovery. And in addition to that, they have an electrolyte blend that includes coconut water that we have our athletes drink instead of taking some you know, sugary drink like Powerade or Gatorade. But most importantly, it works. We've gotten great results with our athletes for enhanced recovery, hydration, and muscle growth. Personally, I'm a little bit partial to the flavor Dragonberry, but really all of them are great. I've tried them all. I like to take one scoop before or during a workout and then one scoop after, or if I'm feeling a little bit dehydrated, I like to take a scoop 
just so I recover and feel a little bit better. You guys have the chance to get a discount on these amazing products using my code COACHHAV10 at checkout. I'll link to UltraHuman in the show notes. Click on that link. And remember, put COACHHAV10 at checkout. It's C-O-H, excuse me, you guys know how to spell coach, C-O-A-C-H, and then HAV, J-A-V, 10, that's one zero, not the word 10, at checkout to get your 10% off of UltraHuman today. All right, as we start to wrap things up, I wanted to make sure that I end this episode with really driving home some practical takeaways, really driving home some ideas that if you were to change or implement some of these things that you're doing tomorrow in your practice, in your role, whatever that may be, that you can become a better coach and really start to embrace this idea of skill adaptation rather than just focusing on skill acquisition. But before I get to that, I want to mention that uh, in the previous segment, I had mentioned the paper. And I believe I uh, misquoted the name of the paper. The paper is what exactly is acquired during skill acquisition, not what exactly is acquired during skill. So I just wanted to go ahead and get that out of the way. Uh, I'll link to that. uh, And I'll go make sure that uh, that is available in the show notes. So Again, what does this mean for you as the coach, as a practitioner, and how can you help your athletes adapt their skill? Well, I'm going to give you three different things, three different methods that you can utilize to help your athletes adapt their skill. So number one, and I mentioned this earlier in the previous segment, embed your athletes within a live movement problems. So you've heard me mention that. I originally heard that term from Sean Mishka. And I've used it many, many times, very liberally on this podcast. But what does it actually mean, a live movement problems? You know, typically in practice, we see a lot of drills that are decontextualized, that are unopposed, that are quote unquote dead, right? So think about uh, the activity of cutting at a cone, right? There is information that is static. It is not changing, right? The cone isn't moving. The cone isn't changing where it is in its placement on the field. That would be the antithesis of an alive movement problem. What I'm saying is we need to embed our athletes in problems where there is decision-making present, well, the condi- where the conditions change within the problem, and they have to solve it a number of ways. So let's take an example and make it in more alive movement problem. So I've used this before, I believe, but on the traditional you know, American football agility test, a 5-10-5, right? So for those that aren't familiar with that, but the athlete stands in the middle, they run five yards towards one cone, and then they run, they decelerate, run towards the other cone 10 yards away, and then run back through through the middle cone. So instead of, say, having that second cone just being there and not changing, right, not being alive, maybe replace that with a person, right? Have a person replace that cone and vary where they start at, where they move to. So that person now has to that's performing the the drill, the activity, now has to change where and when they decelerate. Now, that's just one example, right? That is a very basic example designed to illustrate the point. But anything that you can think of where you have your athletes making decisions that are potentially going to transfer over to their sport so that way they can adapt and they can adjust their movement solutions 
to satisfy and complete and functionally fit the needs of the problem. Number two, allow them to explore. And this is a tough one for a lot of coaches because inherently exploration leads to mistakes and a lot of people will classify mistakes as failure. But in reality, by allowing your athletes to explore, by not dictating, by not telling them necessarily how they need to move, allowing them to solve the problem that is relevant to them, that is going to be the way they solve it, not the way you solve it as a coach or the way athlete A would solve it, that they would solve it, is going to allow them to adapt their skill to who they truly are in that moment in time in their current form of life. So that's very important, right? It, it, this may seem like semantics, but so many coaches will, will, will not allow that to happen, right? We take a technical model that we've learned from somewhere, from a coach previously, someone told us this is the ideal way to move, and we superimpose it within our athletes, and we dictate how they should solve a problem. Now, I'm not saying the coach has to be completely devoid uh, of the problem at all. They, they, can't, um, they can't interject. They can't guide. They can absolutely do that. You can cue. But what we're not doing is telling our athletes how and when to move and being okay with them failing, with them not solving pro- the problem. Because remember, when they're failing, that is information that is useful, right? They're learning how maybe what they did didn't work or maybe why they didn't, it didn't work in, in that situation. And then as a coach, I think it is important to maybe have reflection time, have exploratory questions for your athletes so they can then reflect on what worked, what didn't. So often athletes just go drill through drill and they don't really think about really solving the problem. They think about repeating a solution. And that is not at all how we want our athletes to be. Number three, and this one is also very, very important and I think is inherent to having your athletes explore, and that is going to be to scale the activities that you do. Another way of looking at this is to reduce or increase the task complexity. I did an episode about this a while back. I will make sure to link this in the show notes, but we have to understand that each athletes, each athlete adapts their skill at different levels or in different phases of their development. It could be a youth athlete, an older athlete, or an athlete returning from injury. You may not always want to have a really complex, a really intricate activity designed for them. You can scale that down. Now, of course, as Cal Jones has said previously on this podcast, you want to scale without impoverishing. Still keep it alive. So what does that look like? What could that look like? Right? That could be as simple as if, if, you know, we're using a basketball example, maybe, right? Instead of having your athlete dribble around cones, you, you have them dribble, you know, do that um, in opposition, right? Having somebody guard them, or maybe, you know, you can reduce the problem by not going five on five, right? Maybe don't go five on five, go three on three, two on two. So that's one way, reducing the number of opponents, the number of bodies present in the playing space. You can also reduce the playing space itself. Maybe you just go half court or cut a line, line down the middle of the court so they can't utilize the, the left half of the court and they have to stay on the right. There are any number of ways that you can do it. You can also, by reducing the playing size, you reduce velocity. Slowing it down may allow them to make better decisions or make more deliberate decisions. And there are often times in in, in a practice, in an activity, where maybe you program something that is beyond that athlete's challenge point. So instead of just sitting there and having them struggle too much, where it's clearly past their optimal grip, it's clearly past them, you can reduce the activity to allow them 
to kind of regain that challenge point, something that is still challenging, but yet achievable. Because when something is a 10 out of 10 challenging, it's really not the ideal place for an athlete to try something novel, to try something creative. Imagine if you were learning to spar for the first time. Now, we've talked about in this podcast about having your athlete spar from day one, right, in the episode with Scott Sievright. But that doesn't mean that he's going to throw him into a ring with judges, with a crowd, with full contact. He's going to scale it down. So something that maybe, and I don't want to speak for Scott, but that you could do, is maybe just do shoulder tack, right? That's sparring in a, in a way, right? Not getting hit and then hitting, right? That's the object of it. But then you're just tagging their shoulders. Or maybe it's reducing any head contact. Or maybe it's limiting the amount of movement options that the athlete can have. Maybe just jabs, maybe just straights, just an, as an example. So these are ways that you can scale an activity and still keep it relevant for that athlete. And I want to wrap us up with this. And I think this is an important uh, soapbox or PSA moment for coaches. But, you know, we talk about this idea of adaptation, of asking our athletes to be adaptable, asking our athletes to be dexterous. Well, then if that's the case, we have to ask that of ourselves. And as coaches, we have to be okay with being uncomfortable. A lot of these things that I'm talking about here may make you uncomfortable the first time that you try them. I mean, shoot, they still make me and other practitioners who've been doing this for a while uncomfortable. But as a coach, if you're going to set the example for your athletes and ask them to be uncomfortable and, and be okay with making mistakes, then you have to be okay with making mistakes as well. And you can't let your ego get so involved in the process that you're afraid to really take that next step in your development so your athlete's development can also take that next step. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. This is uh, something a little bit different. I always enjoy these because it, it stretches my optimal grip and pushes me to my challenge point. Uh, so I am appreciative of all of you who have tuned in so far and who are tuning into this episode. I'm hoping to do at least one more episode like this where we discuss some of these terms. My goal is that it maybe brings down some of the stigma of these terms and it lowers the barrier for coaches to adopt this approach and really start on the path to improving and making their athletes the best they can be. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. If you like what you heard, share the episode with a friend, share it on social media, or even better, write us a review. Until next time, we'll see you on the Athlete Blueprint Podcast. Take care.